Hey everybody, welcome back to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, so for today, let's do a Q&A. Let's tackle a couple of questions. I have actually picked out five questions that have come in, well, actually, over the past several weeks, and quite honestly, this a couple of these questions have come up in years past even. And so the five questions that I've picked here to tackle today are ones that seem to come up often and or are relevant to the timing. So we're here we are in middle of July 2020 and uh, one of them regarding wallows that uh, someone has been seeing either scouting or hunting. Uh, I think timing, my answer and my response to that, the timing is is a little critical so I wanted to answer it here. But there's a couple of them that I'm actually going to dive into in much greater detail over on the Row Hunting Resources website, the Elk Module, the Elk Hunting Institute, because I want to be able to show video. I think video is going to be key, and actually one of these questions actually reference, well, two of them reference um, some of the videos that you find in the Elk Module and Elk Hunting Institute, and so it will be highly beneficial for people to be able to see what I'm talking about. And I'm actually going to go through the videos that I have on the website and use those exact examples in my explanations and and talk through some of those scenarios so folks have a little bit better understanding of what's going on. So I'm going to touch on the basics here. However, understand some of these are going to go into much, much greater detail over on the website. All right, so let's dive in. So AJ Dubay, and I hope I'm saying that last name correctly. So it's D-U-B-E with a little acute accent over the E. Um, I think that's Dubay. If I if I butchered that, man, I am sorry. Um, but so he so he sent me a question. I'm going to paraphrase it. So he's hunting in an area that's that's somewhat steep, and I'll just, well, there's a lot of terrain, it, a lot of relief in the terrain, just a lot of ridges, a lot of up and down. And in the bottom, in a lot of the, in the bottom of a lot of the little drainages, there are little pockets of higher soil moisture areas. So if you go back to a previous podcast, I talked about how moisture acts on a mountain. I talk about that sponge concept and how water settles down the mountain. Um, So in these drainages, it's not necessarily a creek. It's just where two slopes come together and you've got this little seasonal drainage. But in the bottom of those drainages, here's a little pocket that might have a wallow, a little, you know, wet soil area that has a lot of grass, you know, a lot of grass, good green grass around it that a bull may have gone in and dug up and created a wallow. And maybe it's just a few yards wide or maybe 10 to 20 yards, 50 yards, you know, in diameter. So small little pockets in the timber down in the bottom of these drainages. But there are several of them. So there might be three, four, five down this little this little channel. And then you go over the over the ridge down the other side, and here's another little, and here's three over there. You go over the next little ridge and, and 
drop down in the bottom, there's another four or five over there. And then maybe even up on the slopes, you'll find a little pocket, just a little bench, just a little hanging bench up there in the middle of the dark timber. All of a sudden, here it is. It's 10 yards across, 20 yards across, and here's a little pocket of grass, a little bit more moist soil, and a bull has horned it out and dug it out and it's become a wallow so you've got all these wallows just kind of scattered across the landscape the question was all right how do you hunt that is it something that you can actually use from a strategic standpoint and strategically um, and purposefully hunt that hunt those wallows or is it just something you just like, you know what, there's a bunch of wallows here and we just write it off and you just continue to move on and, and do whatever the heck, you, you know, chase bugles or, you know, go out and prospect and, and try to get somebody to, to talk with you. So, well, from my perspective, this is actually one of the few times that I might actually say this is where game cameras might actually be an asset for your hunt. Now, I'm going to have a conversation about game cameras in the future. But for right now, generally speaking, for the vast majority of people that are hunting public ground, over-the-counter units, in mountainous terrain, where elk are migratory, I generally do not recommend people running game cameras for scouting purposes. And when I say scouting purposes, I mean running game cameras in the summer. Now, I've talked about this in other places, but real briefly here. What I see oftentimes is a lot of guys will go up, guys and gals will go up in June or July 4th weekend is a popular time. They'll go up, they'll put game cameras up. They'll let them run through the summer. Some people get impatient and then go back and check the cameras in the end of July. And then they'll go back in the middle of August. And then they'll go back in right before September. Because they want to see the pictures. Two things for me, the reason why I generally discourage people, try to discourage people from doing that is... Number one, if you cannot control yourself and you cannot stay out of an area, the closer to September, well, not even September, the closer to when you're going in there to hunt, you go in to check your cameras, the more likely you are to disturb the animals that you actually might end up wanting to hunt. The people in the whitetail world know this quite Acutely. Now, granted, whitetails are much different than elk in many regards. However, safety and using their nose for safety is not one of them. They are very similar in that regard. And if you're talking mature bulls or older, let me phrase that. Sorry. Mature animals. Because there are some places that people are placing cameras where you might have cow-calf groups, and you might have mature cows in there. Other areas, people are placing cameras. Maybe it's where you have bachelor bulls. If you are targeting bachelor bulls and you've got mature bulls on camera, again, a mature bull doesn't get big by being stupid. 
I say that because the more times you go in to the area that you want to hunt before hunting season, the more disturbance you put on the landscape, the more likely you are to move to 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 provide an incentive or a rationale for that animal to to feel as though it needs to move away from that off-trail style human disturbance and they move out of that area and make that pre-rut move maybe a little earlier or they move out of that area altogether and don't come back. Some people are, like I just alluded to, some people are going into areas where, yes, there are bulls there. It is their summer range. The cows and calf, the, the cow and calf groups might be somewhere else, but this transition area is where the bulls are spending their summer. Yes, can you get a bunch of pictures of bulls on camera in July and August? Yes, or you know, especially the first half of August. Yes. But a lot of people fail to realize that in many areas you have bulls that will leave their summer areas, make that pre-rut, what I call that pre-rut move. They will make that pre-rut move and they will seek out those cow-calf groups and they actually leave the area prior to the end of August, beginning of September. The question is whether or not they come back. So sometimes having cameras out in the field during the summer, if you can't leave them alone, creates a situation whereby all of a sudden, as summer progresses and the closer and closer to hunting season you get, you have more and more people pioneering up into some of these sanctuary areas, these safe places for these elk, and there's more and more human disturbance. Elk will figure that out and you can absolutely alter their behavior. The other thing that I've talked about in the past, why I don't like it is, let's just say you go up there, you put a game camera up on a, on a series of wallows or whatever, and all of a sudden a just an absolute giant smoker of a bull is on that camera all of July and through the first part of August. Now you're like, oh, hell yeah, this is the bull I want. And you go all in on this one area. But he disappears. And you never see him again. Likely he made that pre-rut move and he moved out. Whether or not he comes back to that area is all dependent on whether or not cows want to come back to that area. And if it's the cows that want to come back to that area, are is he with that group of cows that wants to come back to that area? The bull is going to follow the cows. The, the bull is not going to lead the cows or drive the cows to an area that he chooses. Cows are going to go to the area that they choose, and he's going to follow. Well, is he going to follow back to that spot? That's a crapshoot, man. Go to Vegas, play the odds on that one. So sometimes having prior knowledge of what's going on in a summer area can skew skew your decision-making process and completely foobar 
your opening weekend or opening week play because you're looking at bulls that are on their summer range, not bulls that are going to be there while you are there hunting. Does that make sense? So normally I am discouraging people from going out in the summer and putting game cameras up. Now, if we're talking about in an area that's very arid, like Arizona, like some areas in Southern Colorado, New Mexico, maybe even Utah, Nevada, any area that is extremely dry, where all of a sudden water becomes key, well, there you go. Now you have a limited, what I call HRCs, Habitat Resource Components, food, water, sanctuary, etc. If you have a limiting factor on the landscape, like water, water is limiting, then animals have to stay somewhat near that source because they're going to need it. Well, now, okay, that's a different that's a different ball game, especially if we're talking about during your hunt when you can get some up to you know not up to the minute, but most recent information of what activity is going on around that waterhole at the moment. So during the during your hunt, yes, I, I have no problem. I, I really don't have a problem using game cameras. I will use them. I know a lot of people use them successfully, especially in Arizona. But when you're looking into the summer, some people will run game cameras in the summer to get an inventory if we're talking about around those water sources. People will use them to get an inventory of what the bulls look like in that area, knowing that uh, by and large, many of the bulls in a particular hunt unit are still going to be somewhere in that hunt unit. And if you can figure out what their general home range is, you may be able to figure out what group of water holes, say, a particular monster bull is using. Maybe he is in this particular part of the unit, and depending on the day, depending on the week, he is using one of six different water holes. He might, in the summer, use one or two water holes. But then as fall moves in, he's using three, four, five, six different water holes because he's with cows and those cows are roaming the landscape. And as, you know, changes in conditions or whatever change the water resources, he's got to move with them and the cows got to move with them. So, but you can kind of use the summer inventory to figure out where their home range is, possibly, 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 because there's plenty of examples where bulls will summer in one area and then pick up and go 20 miles one direction and rut in a completely different area, all right? So summer game cam use in some situations can give you information on what type of animals you have in the area or might have in the area. But when you translate what you see in the summer on your game cameras, with what you're going to see in the fall in your hunt, do not expect them to be the same. Quite honestly, you ought to expect them to be completely different. Again, that's why I don't normally recommend people to run game cameras in the summer just to scout, so to speak. However, if you you want to put a game camera up in the summer, 
let it soak, so to speak, and let it sit there until you start your hunt. And then your hunt strategy is to go and say, okay, we're going to go into this area for, for a day. We're going to hunt our way up through. We're going to see if we engage elk. And as we hunt through this area, we will check the game cameras that we put up there. And in my my opinion, how I run my game cameras, I go straight to the last. I, I don't start at the first picture and then go through. I go to the end. I go to the last picture that's taken and then I go backwards. The reason being is I want to see the most recent information. So if I show up, I'm hunting my way up the mountain and through this valley or up this ridge and in this area. I'm actively hunting. As I'm actively hunting, I work my way over to where a game camera is. I pull the camera, check the pictures on the card, and I start at the last picture taken and I work my way back. Flick, 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 flick. Okay, that was this morning. Okay, last night. Okay, yesterday yesterday morning. Okay, okay. Whoop, here we go. Yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning, here is a decent bull that I would consider a shooter. He was on this, say, wallow yesterday. Sweet. I'd like to kill that bull. Okay. That was yesterday afternoon in my spot right now as I am actively hunting, which means there's a high probability that bull is somewhere around within eye shot of where I'm standing. Okay. Now I keep going back. Click, 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 click. Boom. Two days ago, afternoon, he was in this wallow. Nice. Click, 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 click. Two, three, four, five, six days. Every day, every day he's showing up at this wallow between somewhere between three o'clock and five o'clock in the afternoon. Bingo. That, that is the information I'm looking for on a game camera. As I am hunting. The further back you go in that, that card, the less predictable oftentimes the activity is going to be. So I want to use that most recent information. However, I also don't want to be going in to hang my game camera right before my hunt because I don't want to be disturbing those animals. The reason why I chose to tackle this question now is because we are sitting literally middle of July 2020. This is about the drop dead date that I would entertain going up into the hills where I want to hunt and hanging a camera. You could be having bulls right now showing up in their location, in this spot where they're going to stay for the next month before they make that pre-rut move. Some of those bulls may actually not make a pre-rut move Some of those bulls in some areas, in some habitats, will actually stay in their summer area and wait for the cows to drop down into them. So if you're going to put a camera up, I do recommend getting it in there, say July 
you know, July 4th weekend all the way to maybe the middle part of, of July, the 14th, 15th, 16th, somewhere right middle part of July. Get them in there now or earlier and then just let them soak. Let them be, let them work, let them do their job. And then when you go to check them, you do so as you are hunting. That way, if you walk in and you check that card and holy, 30 minutes ago, that bull was in this wallow, that bull is right there. You may have a, have a play and have a chance to work him. Or as you're going through the pictures, you're like, click, 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 click. He's here every day. We missed him by 30 minutes. Me? Get the freaking hell out. Get out, get out, get out. If he's if he is there like clockwork every day, just get out. Get out, back out again. For me, I love to call. But like I talked about in I've talked about it on my side, I've talked about it in other places. Calling is nothing but a tool. And if I have a good bull that I want to kill and he is predictable on a wallow or a water source or whatever, Every single day between this time and this time, he's got a schedule. Oh, hell, why in the world would I want to screw that up? Back the hell out. Just get your scent out of there. Get out of there. Go hunt somewhere else and just be there the next day to capitalize on it. All right? So that's why I said, again, that's why I wanted to tackle this question now because right now, this time of, of, of July, is getting to the point where it's my, me personally, my opinion, my drop dead date to get something out there or just stay the hell out, all right? But when we're looking at his particular question, where in this area, we've got a lot of dark timber, steep, dark timber with numerous, it's not just one or here or two or what, numerous spots, every single spot where it opens up into a little clearing where you got a little bit of grass, there's enough soil moisture that an elk has gone in, horned it up, dug it up, and there's a little wallow. Wallow there, wallow there, wallow there, wallow, all over the place. How in the world do you decipher what's going on with all those wallows and how do you pick the one that you want to hunt, especially if they're all being used? And they all seem to have somewhat relatively fresh sign. All right. Here's my opinion. This is where you run multiple cameras. Maybe you run one camera in each little drainage. Maybe you put a camera on each little hidden pocket and and little, you know, um, sanctuary, what I call those kind of sanctuary wallows that are tucked up in those that thick cover. Put a camera, absolutely put a camera in those little wallows that are tucked up in next to bedding areas. Absolutely. Because those are the ones that can oftentimes have that predictable movement during the middle part of the day. Elk are bedded off, you know, maybe 100, 200, 300 yards or whatever away from that little spot. Middle of the day, they get up, stretch their legs, walk over, go to the wallow, get a drink. Maybe they roll around a little bit. They go back, bed down with the rest of the group, and there they are. Those little sanctuary wallows can be absolute money during the middle part of the day if you can work the wind and the wind and the wind is consistent enough to predict and play strategically. This is where a lot of people will hang a tree stand or use a tree saddle or whatever to get up above that wallow, get their scent up above that, and then just sit during the middle part of the day. 
um, chase bugles in the morning, try to find bugles in the morning, chase bugles or try to find bugles in the evening, but they're the middle part of the day. Sit your butt up over a good wallow, especially those that are tucked up into those little sanctuary areas. It can be, it can absolutely play big dividends, pay big dividends. Now, again, that's where a camera on those little tucked in wallows is key. The question is, is how many cameras do you have or you want to have? And do you run one in each little drainage in and around the area that you're hunting? Or do you run multiple? If you have the ability to run multiple cameras, okay, maybe you run multiple cameras. The reason why I say that is habitats like these and wallow use like this, where you have multiple wallows in a drainage and multiple little drainages very close, you know, relatively close together. You know, there's just a lot of terrain, a lot of little drainages, a lot of little creeks, a lot of little, you know, it won't take one elk very long to hit three or four of them, if that makes sense. What you need to figure out is how many elk are in the area? And are we dealing with one bull and one group of cows that are literally going from pocket of grass to pocket of grass to pocket of grass to pocket of grass and they're walking and moving across the landscape hitting all those forage areas. Again, these are tiny pockets. They're not big open parks. They're not big open meadows. They're just tiny little pockets of of vegetation and water. If you've got a group of elk that's in that area, and these are the really the only areas of high quality forage, a tiny little pocket is not going to provide all those animals with the food that they need every day. So they're going to they're going to move across the landscape. You can watch cattle do this, you can watch horses do this, you can watch bison do this. This is just basic grazing strategy. They will move across the landscape, nibble nibble, nibble nibble, nibble nibble, move to the next. Nibble nibble, nibble nibble, move to the next. And they'll move around that landscape hitting each one a little bit and just moving on. By the next day, each one of those has just a tiny little bit of new growth. So, especially if we're talking about grasses and maybe some forbs and stuff, each one of those, if the soil moisture is good, there's going to be a little tiny little bit, especially if we're talking about cool season grasses, there's going to be a little bit of new growth after the previous night's foraging activities. So they hit the first one again, then they hit the next one, next one, and they just go across that landscape, picking a little bit, 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 and move through. It would be very interesting to know whether or not you're dealing with one group of cows and calves and one or two bulls that are hitting all of those. Because quite honestly, the cows may be just going out there to feed and and drinking in the wallow and moving on. But every time they stop to feed in one of those little pockets, the bulls might just go and slam the piss out of that wallow. So every one of those wallows have, has, has been freshened up, but it's been freshened up by the same two or three or whatever bulls. One, two or three bulls. 
Okay? That would be good to know. However, flip side is, you may be in a situation where you do have a good elk population in the area and you might have multiple harems. Bull with a cow over here, bull with a cow over there, bull with a cow over here or there or wherever. One thing behaviorally you need to understand with bulls and their harems, they want, uh, and even the cows, there are times when cows want to be with other cows. There's no question about that. But during the rut, there are plenty of examples and plenty of times where you can show and see that cows just don't want to be with one another. I can show you this repeatedly down in Arizona where you might only have one water source for several or many square miles. But there may be five different groups of elk in there, you know, 20 cows and this bull and his satellite and, and satellite bulls. And then there's 10 cows over here with a bull and a satellite bull. And then there's another 15 cows over here with just one bull. Okay. You've got multiple groups, multiple harems, multiple groups of animals, all occupying the same general region as one water source. And especially if that, you know, down in Arizona, you're talking about a wildlife waterer or a drinker or a trick tank or whatever you want to call them, where they're basically, it's a holding tank, a plastic holding tank that just trickles out a little bit of water in a little small drinker that might be a few square feet, you know, you know, might be two feet wide by four or six feet long or whatever. Well, any animal that wants to come get water out of that resource is going to be on top of one another. It's a tiny little spot to drink. I can absolutely show you and, and, and anybody that guides down in Arizona can attest to this, where you will have a group of elk come down into get water and the other groups of elk will actually stage off in the periphery in the timber and they will wait until that group is done and moves off. Sometimes, yes, two groups, you know, maybe one group of cows is just brutally thirsty and another group of cows is like, you know what? Screw a bunch of this. We're dying of thirst. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna, we're coming in and we're getting water too. Oh, hell. Here we go. All hell's about break, uh, all hell is about to break loose with those bulls because when those cows start to commingle, now the bulls just go nuts. But a lot of times those cows will self-regulate and they will partition themselves and they will stay away from other cow groups and they will take turns coming to the water source. The point being here in AJ's example, if you have all of these different wallows scattered across the landscape in these little pockets, in these little drainages, running a game camera might very well be able allow you to be able to determine is there one bull in his group of cows using this group of wallows and then there's another bull in his cows using this other group of wallows and then there's another bull in his group of cows with a satellite bull in there using this other group of wallows. Are you dealing with one group that is moving across the landscape, hitting them all? Or are you dealing with multiple groups that have partitioned themselves? That may very well play into how you want to tackle uh, your strategy or how you want to tackle going in and hunting these groups. 
So again, this is one of the, the rare occasions where I'd say, okay, maybe it is good to go in and put a game camera in there in at least in each drainage, if not on multiple wallows in each of those drainages, as well as up in those sanctuary areas. So that way, when you come back to hunt, again, I do not recommend going in there prior to season, preseason, to go check the camera. I'm going to wait until I actually go in there to hunt, check it, evaluate what is the most recent information, what patterns am I seeing, what's going on. Now, Flip side, worst case scenario, you put the game cameras in there now. Everything is just getting tore up to bits right now. It looks awesome right now. So you go in there, you go to hunt, and you go pull that first camera, and you start going back, click, 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 nothing yesterday, nothing the day before, nothing the day before, nothing, 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 nothing this whole week. Crap, click, go, okay, nothing, nothing. Okay, there's one elk, okay, well, nothing, click, 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 nothing. There's been nothing in here for two weeks. Okay, click, click. Oh, well, there, okay, there's a small bowl. Okay, you got click, click. Oh, there's another small. Okay, there's another bowl. Okay, yeah. Oh, the, ooh, that's a nice bowl. Okay, click. Yeah. Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. There were elk in here five weeks ago, four weeks ago, and then three weeks ago, those big bowls didn't show up again, and we've got a couple small bowls. Two weeks ago, they disappeared. And there's not an elk on them. For the last two weeks, there's not a single picture of an elk on this camera. Okay. Now you've got some information. Those bulls probably made that pre-rut move. They probably moved out and headed to those cow-calf groups. If you're doing your scouting properly, you've identified where those cow-calf groups might be right now. And so maybe this area, although it looked great in the summer, is not where these elk want to be now. They are somewhere else now. And if you want to hunt those elk, you need to go to wherever they are now. That's not to say they're not going to come back later, but they're not there now. That's where a game camera, again, can provide some of that most recent information so you understand what's going on in a particular area as far as the movement patterns and the activity patterns in and around some of these resource components like wallows, water sources, all right? So, yeah, AJ, if you do not have cameras on there now, if you have the ability to get your butt up there, scramble and throw some cameras up there, it might not be a bad idea just to get a good inventory of what's going on. I absolutely would put some cameras on those tucked in out of the way places. Excuse me. And then I would just plan on having this area be part of your rotation when you start to actively hunt. Set up a plan where you can go in and sometimes if you're hunting with a, a buddy or, or other guys maybe you say okay we've got cameras over there we've got cameras over there 
I'm going to go one way. You go the other way. We're going to go prospect. We're going to go hunt. If we get a, uh, a bull to bugle and he wants to scream in our face or and he wants to respond to cow calls and I stick him and I put him on the ground, awesome. Woohoo. If nothing else, I'll check these cameras. You check these cameras. We'll come back to camp. We'll powwow. See what's going on. All right? But I would, I would evaluate and check the cameras during your hunt, not prior to your hunt. That makes sense. Um, and again, and, and I will touch on this real quick. There are a lot of people that kill a lot of bulls, a lot of big bulls, and they all they do is just sit tree stands over wallow, especially those ones that are tucked into those sanctuary areas. Man, if you were dealing with hot weather, silent elk, sometimes those things can absolutely be money. So if you're out there scouting or you know some of these areas that have these long-term uh, perennial wallows or water sources that are tucked up into the dark timber up on a bench somewhere, man, those are the ones I'm going to, if I'm going to put a game camera, I'm damn sure, excuse me, darn well going to put a camera on that because I want to know who is using this now and when because you very well may be able to capitalize Early, especially early, especially early season, you very well may be able to capitalize on a really nice mature bowl right off the get go. All right, all right. So that's the first question. Next question. Let me just tackle this one. This one. This one will be uh, pretty quick. So, folks have heard me talk about the fact that I worked with Jason Phelps to make a mouth diaphragm for me that met kind of what I like to have in a mouth diaphragm for cow calling. Jason was able to absolutely, all right, let me just put it this way. Jason makes a, a, a cow call, mouth diaphragm, called his tag notcher, all right? It is a phenomenal call. Right up, just, just straight right there, if you want a good mouth diaphragm for cow calling, you cannot go wrong, in my opinion, with a tag notcher. Now, how I call and for what I wanted to do with a mouth diaphragm, the tag notcher got me about 75 to 80% of the way to where I wanted to be or what I was looking for. And so a few years back, I got a hold of Jason. I talked to him about it. And I said, man, I'd like one that had a little bit more backbone to it that that allowed me to just absolutely crank on that thing if I wanted to without blowing it out, without squelching it out. And so he put together the Chris Rowe version or the Rowe Hunting Resources version or whatever you want to call it. He put together a tag notcher style mouth diaphragm for me that was a little bit beefier, maybe you could say, than what he normally makes. And that year, with that latex, oh my word, ladies and gentlemen, it was, and to this day still is, the best mouth call I have ever run in my life. 
and I'm not, I, I don't make a dime off of these calls. I am not working with Jason. I, I'm just telling you, I get his calls because they fit my mouth and they work well. I'm not a dome. I, I'm not a, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of the dome style mouth calls. So I generally run the traditional style mouth calls. I'm I'm not I'm not exaggerating. It's is the best mouth diaphragm I've ever put in my mouth, and I could do anything with this thing from a cow call standpoint. I could just crank with the loudest, highest pitched lost muse, and go right straight. I mean, literally crank the highest pitched lost muse, and then go immediately to the softest, deep mature cow sound I wanted to they were incredible and I've had Jason make me them each year now the the problem is is there we and I need to talk to Jason here well probably now latex is an organic material as such there is variability in latex from year to year and from batch to batch and so each year we've got to play with, Jason needs to play with and tweak making that call for me to try to, to emulate the what he originally created several years back. That latex changed a little bit, so we're, we're still playing with it. If folks want the essential quote-unquote Chris Rowe version of his tag notcher, if you want that, you need to get a hold of it. You go, go to his website. You can contact him through his website website, or email him if you want. But you need to, it's not, it's not a call that you can just go add to cart. You need to go in there and message him and say, hey, I am interested in this, in Chris Rowe's version of the Tag Notcher or the Rowe Hunting Resources Tag Notcher or whatever you want to call it. He'll know what you're talking about. And he will custom build that call for you. All right. So if you want to use that, you see me using it in my videos. You see me, you know, hear me talking about it. And then you go to his site to buy it. There's a reason why it doesn't show up. It's a custom call. So if you want a custom call, you have to ask for a custom call. Just message him through the website. He's awesome. He'll build it. The guy, that's why I love working with Jason. It's, it's, Man, that was, yeah, it was awesome. Last year's calls were really, really good. But I, what I ended up finding out is with my personal hunts and then all my guiding, after a week or two of just cranking on the call, I would start to maybe wear it out a little bit and I'd, I'd have to switch to another one. The, the first year that he came, you know, the first year we played with him, I, I, no exaggeration. I used one call the entire season, and I mean, I just laid into it. Laid. I tried to destroy it and could not, and it was awesome. So, if you want to play with that call, get a hold of Jason, ask for it, he'll build it, and then you can go evaluate and see what you like. But, with that being said, do not hesitate to also just go ahead and get the regular tag notcher because you may find you like that one a little. Maybe that one is better for you than than my version. 
and and play around with some of the other calls that he's got because they're they're phenomenal. All right. So for those that have been asking for that call, that's how you go about doing it. You have to ask Jason to build it for you. All right. Question number three, uh, another relatively quick one. Um, campfires during hunting, my opinion on it. My opinion, no. I do not run a campfire while I'm hunting. To be honest, uh, it's a two-part question. It's a, Well, it's a two-pronged question, not two-part. Two-pronged question. One is simply the fact that I'm one of those guys that will sit at a campfire and the smoke will blow in my face. Doesn't matter where I'm at on the campfire. I can move around the campfire 18 times and the smoke will just move around the campfire and follow me and it'll blow in my face. I don't like smelling like smoke. Now, I do have, I've always been somewhat, I, I say allergic, but I've been sensitive to smoke, whether it's cigarette smoke or any smoke. And it just messes my sinuses up and makes me cough and everything else. Um, I think it goes way back to when we were living with my grandmother as a as a toddler and she smoked like a, I mean, I don't know how many packs of cigarettes she smoked a day, but since then I just, well, I can't handle it. I just can't handle smoke. And so I don't, a lot of times I don't have a campfire. I just don't want to smell like smoke. Because then you smell like smoke, your hair gets smelling like smoke, and you go to lay to lay down at night, and you get in your sleeping bag, and then your sleeping bag starts smelling like smoke, and everything it just everything just smells like smoke, and it's like nope, don't want to deal with that. Number one, but number two, number two, I think is related to a secondary discussion on where I camp. And where I see some people camping in relation to where they are hunting. Normally, I am camping, if I'm going to be in a backpack or a backcountry scenario, backpacking my way into where my campsite is. Typically speaking, I am going to be hunting twenty a, a 20 to 30 minute hike away from camp. I'm usually putting about a mile, maybe a mile and a half or more of distance between where I'm hunting and where I'm actually camping. Because I don't want my scent messing up the area that I want to hunt in. In the afternoon, the thermals are going up. Depending on the valley and in the ridge and the, and the mountain system is, you know, middle part of the day, the scent from my camp might actually be going right up into those bedding areas where I, where the elk are that I want to hunt later on. I don't want them to know that humans are in there. I talk about my colleague strategy all the time and, and, and why I call the way I do. I don't want elk to know that there's a human there, even when I'm calling. So I don't want to run a campfire and let them know that, oh, there's humans down there. Now, if we're talking a mile or a mile and a half or two miles away from where you're actually hunting, okay, well, okay, is the is the smell of smoke getting there? Uh, well, to be honest, I have in some places absolutely confirmed that that campfire smoke can go several miles up the valley or especially 
in the evenings and, and, and at night and early morning, you start up the valley and you're like, what the heck? I smell smoke. Only to find out that you're smelling the campfire smoke from someone two miles or two and a half miles up the drainage. And those evening thermals are just bringing that scent all the way down that valley. Now, a person could argue that if you're camped there and you're in and, and campfire camp smoke and the smell of smoke is going to move down that valley that far, well then damn well your, your scent from your camp is going to move that far. So it's irrelevant whether there's a campfire there or not. They're still going to smell you. You know what? I have no response. You're absolutely right. That is an argument and that could be a possibility. I have no way of determining either way whether one's better, one's not. All I know is I can smell a campfire smoke. I might not be able to smell your fart sack from two miles away. Uh, are the elk, obviously they've got a lot better scent than, or better sense of smell than we do. So probably, I don't know. I personally do not run campfires when I'm hunting. I'm not so much worried about the smell of smoke on me as I'm hunting. Again, I I talk all the time about the see you first, hear you second, smell you third principle and the way I hunt and the way I call those animals. If I'm playing the wind right, those animals are going to come into me directly. They're not going to want to swing downwind anyway. So it doesn't matter how badly I stink, they're not going to smell me before they eat an arrow. Okay, ideally. So I'm not worried about the smell of smoke while I'm hunting. I'm usually worried about the smell of smoke on me that's going to contaminate the rest of my sleeping bag and, and the tent and all that so I don't have to smell it. And then I'm worried about the campfire smoke during the evenings or during the day when the thermals are pulling that scent up and down the mountain, up and down those valleys, and whether or not those animals are associating that with human presence and whether that association and their learned behavior and avoidance of humans ends up, the campfire ends up triggering them to alter their behavior and their movement and their activity on the landscape while I'm actually hunting. So that's just my opinion. Oh, and I did forget to mention, so Adam Cunliffe uh, on the elk module forum you were the last one to ask about the the mouth diaphragm the phelps game calls tag notcher and then mike cooper is it cooper it's got to be cooper or cupper cooper i think it's cooper same on the forum was asking about the the campfires i forgot to give you guys a shout out so thanks for asking those but again those are questions that come up all the time um all right, now let's tackle the last two questions. And these are topics that I am going to do a separate video for each. And I will put those on the Elk Module, Elk Hunting Institute, because I want to show you video. And I think it's valuable to, that you are able to see video. So, first, Sean Lorenz wanted to add, wanted a little bit more information regarding quartering two shots. The shot angle where the animal is quartering to you. Where 
what is that angle in which it is safe to take that shot? Everybody wants a broadside. A lot of people want a quartering away shot. Everybody wants a broadside. I have talked about, and Corey Jacobson has talked about, and did and did a good video on the frontal shot. I've actually killed a couple of bulls of mine on frontal shots, and I absolutely love the the full on frontal shot. However, and rightfully so, a lot of subscribers to the elk module, elk hunting institute. They watch what I do and they watch the strategies and action section where I literally, that's all it is about. It's okay. There's a bull over there. We're going to move in. We're going to set up and we're going to call him in and we're going to see if we can't call him to our toes. Put him right smack in our lap. My calling style and the fact that I'm a solo hunter often times means those animals come straight in and they are presenting a frontal shot or a lot of times they might end up being in that quartering two angle and the question was he sent me a picture and said is this a good shot angle and the picture that he sent me and the orientation of the elk that he sent me no, no, not at all. Because the knuckle of that shoulder, okay? And this is why I'm going to do this as a separate video in the elk module. Because I want to be able to show you this. If you look at the shoulder blade, the chunk of bone of the shoulder blade that covers the upper part of the chest is a blade. They call it a shoulder blade because it's thin and wide. But as it goes in, it, it goes down towards the joint, the shoulder joint, where it matches up with that leg bone, all right? It gets thicker and denser, and that shoulder joint, the ball of that shoulder, is a massive chunk of bone. And then that leg bone, it's and so that angles forward towards the front of the chest, sticks out in the front, and then the leg bone just kind of goes, all, not quite horizontal, but kind of at a 20 to 30 degree angle backwards. To where it meets up with that, what we would call maybe an elbow joint. And then the rest of the leg goes straight to the ground from there. But that shoulder joint, where it meets that leg bone, that leg bone is just a large honking dense bone in itself. And so that bone coupled with the socket of the shoulder that's a huge mass of bone. And so when you're contemplating on whether or not to take a shot from a quartering animal, a quartering two animal, you always have to evaluate where is the ball of that shoulder? Where is that front portion of that most dense, large chunk of bone? In relation to where the heart 
and bronchial tubes and the, and the brachia are on the lungs. You've got to be able to 3D image in your mind what the internal organs look like in that inside that animal and then evaluate. Is that big knuckle there, that big shoulder joint, lying in front of the best part of the vitals, the sweet spot of the vitals, or is it not? Given the size of that joint, there are many instances where a quartering to you shot is not a shot you want to take because in order for you to miss that knuckle, you either have to do one of two things. You have to either aim in front of it and try to hug that knuckle and get in front of it and hope to put your arrow in the front part of the lungs or you need to put your arrow behind that knuckle and try to get your arrow into the the back part of the lungs. Here's the problem with that. Some t- a lot of times if you are trying to go left or right of that knuckle because the knuckle is covering the good heart you know lung area what you're doing is you're what do I want how do I want to say it you're you're holding on the fringe edge of the vitals just to get around the bone and so if you aim in front of that knuckle Depending on the angle, this is why it needs to be on video. And this is why I'm going to do the separate video on this. You need to be able to see this on an actual elk. If you're going in front of that knuckle, because the knuckle is covering the heart in the in the center part of the lungs, if you aim in front of it, it dep- unless you hit it at the right elevation you very well might actually miss the near side lung and only catch the offside lung. You might go through the front portion of the lobe of the offside lung. That sounds awesome. Other than the fact it might be a single lung or a one lung hit. An elk can go a hell of a long way with a single lung hit. Likewise, if you are holding behind that knuckle to try to get it into the lungs, to avoid that big chunk of bone, if that knuckle is covering the sweet spot of the heart and the bronchial tubes of the center part of the lungs, oftentimes, even if you hug what I call that triangle, so, you know, you follow the inside pocket of the, of the shoulder blade down to that knuckle across the top of that leg bone and then back up to the top of the shoulder blade. There's, there's, a, there's a, essentially a triangle there that's a bunch of muscle. There's a lot of muscle there, but there's no bone. 
And that's just all money shot right there. On a broadside animal, that's where I aim. I aim right in what I call that triangle. I want to hug inside there so I'm getting the front part of the lungs cutting across those bronchial tubes, cutting across those those main arteries going into the heart or if and, and or right through the top of the heart. It's just, I mean, they don't go anywhere. They don't go anywhere. But if they're quartering to you to where that knuckle is covering where the heart lies... If you aim behind that knuckle, even if you go into that triangle pocket, again, you're most likely going to hit the back of the near side lung and then into the liver. Now, that's a dead elk at some point. Go back and review my video on the mod, on the on the website high country redemption where i got that 6x6 for you subscribers you got the full version of that hunt okay so you know exactly what i'm talking about on on, on when i actually made the killing shot on that bull how many hours later stress freaking out over whether i'm going to find this okay You've if if you're a subscriber, watch that High Country Redemption on through the seasons. Review that one because that's exactly the shot I made in reverse. I actually I it was a slight quartering away shot, but I hit him back a little bit further than I expected. I got a full pass through. It everything looked awesome, but I got liver and one lung. I got that elk 16 hours later and he was alive. Okay? So, sometimes quartering two shots can be tricky. Oh, no. Sorry. A lot of times, quartering two shots can be tricky. You have to evaluate exactly how steep of an angle quartering to you or how shallow of an angle quartering to you that animal is. If the knuckle is not covering where the heart is, then you are more likely to be able to achieve a double lung hit. But you're still going to, on a quartering two shot, you're still going to have to hug bone. You're still going to have to gamble and and kind of crowd some of that bone a little bit. That is where my previous discussion about broadhead selection and why you would choose some of these broadheads that are built for or and or setups that are built for maximum penetration okay this is one of those scenarios where you want a system especially a broadhead that is maximizing your ability for deep efficient penetration because if you catch any sort of bone that's going to eat up your penetration if you are hugging into that pocket, going through all that muscle around that leg and shoulder, that's going to eat up a lot of energy. So if you're using a mechanical, good luck getting a double lung double lung hit in those scenarios because you have so much muscle and thick hide to go through, it can be difficult. Now, with that be said, 
you've watched that I've I've killed a couple elk now with the rage hypodermic, and one of the bulls I killed was a frontal shot at 13, 14 yards with a rage hypodermic. Okay, now if we're talking about a frontal, different story. Yes, you have thicker hide up around the mane. Yes, you have the mane that you've got to go through. But once you get through the initial hide, you're almost instantly inside of trachea and soft material. The hide in there is not as as thick. And there's, if it's a true, true, wow, what am I saying? A true full frontal you're not hitting any bone. So all you need to go is through that initial, maybe the mane and that initial uh, hide around the front of the neck. And after that, it's just all net. It's just, it's just, it's easy as, as butter. So if you're running a medium to heavyweight arrow and you're going to take a frontal shot, oh my gosh, a mechanical is awesome for that. But if you're looking at possibly wanting to take those quartering to you shots, I do not recommend a mechanical of any style. That's where I'm going to recommend a good, high-quality, sharp broadhead, iron will. That's what I use. Look at the Day 6, original Ram Cats. You know, those heads that are built for penetration, that's what you're going to need to use. So, again, you, you've got to uh, you've got to be able to three-dimensionally envision that animal in front of you and where their heart lungs are and whether or not you're going to be able to pull off a double lung hit. That's always the goal. A double lung hit, if you could hit the heart, that's even better. But you definitely want a double lung hit, all things considered. So you have to evaluate the angle. Again, we will talk about this in a different video and I'll show you what I'm talking about, all right, on actual elk. So, there you go, Sean. Hope that helps. And then the last one we'll tackle for tonight, uh, James Thomas. Again, another forum question. Uh, this one was about a shot opportunity. And again, he's watching my videos, the the strategies in action videos, where I go out and I just test calling strategies using passive strategies, targeted strategies, aggressive strategies, whatever tactics and we say okay we're gonna go out prospect try to find a bull okay we found one all right we're gonna call him in we're gonna use this and this is why we're gonna do it and let's see how it unfolds and a lot of the call-ins my goal is to put them within you know several steps Ab- absolutely my goal is under you know sub 20 but a lot of times I can put them single digits in front of me so he was watching those videos and he was going through his mind on whether or not he'd be able to get a shot and and how he would be able to get a shot. And he was watching a lot of them and saying, man, I just don't see an opportunity there. I don't see how I would get my bow drawn back and I don't see how I would be able to get a shot given, you know, the angle and where the bull was and how it was. And, you know, so, so how, you know, it's great that I called these things in. It's great that we called them to our toes, but what good is calling them to your toes if you can't get a shot on them? That's an absolutely fair question. That's a legit question. So what I will say is this. 
And again, this is going to be a more in-depth video. Actually, I think I'm going to I'm probably going to use this as our hunt companion series. We'll we'll kick that off and we'll talk about we'll just go through each video and I'll talk about when I would have drawn a bow, where I would have drawn a bow, why I would have drawn my bow when I did. Um and I say bow because if you're hunting with a muzzleloader, again, most of what people are asking and referencing are uh, referencing to are coming from the standpoint they're going to be hunting in September. They're going to be archery or muzzleloader hunting. If we're dealing with a muzzleloader, it, that's a that's a no brainer. You're hopefully your muzzleloader's up. You've got a cap in it or whatever. You're you've got ignition. All you need to do is just follow pull the trigger and be done. Okay. So the issue is being able to get a bow drawn back. Now, so yes, I'm going to do a more in-depth video, but for right now, for here, let me clarify a couple things. Number one, the strategies and actions section is about calling them in close. It's about showcasing the calling strategies, showcasing how I call, why I call, what I'm doing, the rationale behind what I'm doing, what I'm expecting, and then watching it play out on it, it, oh, on the landscape with an elk. And some of them are actual real time. There's very little editing. There's a couple videos that are just a few minutes long. And then I do have some that are, even though they're edited for redundant content, I just get rid of some redundancy. It might be 45 minutes long an hour long, so you can see just how long it takes me to work a particular animal and finally get them in to what I consider a call-in, which is sub-20, all right? So the the strategies and actions section is about calling them in. It's not necessarily about killing them. I know that sounds like a stupid qualification. However, I'm not killing the animal. In the strategies in action section, I'm not killing the animal. The reason why I think it is an important distinction is because when we are faced with the desire, task, job, whatever you want to call it, pressure of killing the animal, a lot of times we are going to kill that animal at the very earliest instance of possibility of actually making the shot. Where that occurs can sometimes be many, many minutes prior to where that bull is ultimately standing within the context of my strategies in action videos. Sometimes what you get to see and witness and learn in those minutes is 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 priceless is is pretty important it, if nothing else it's just pretty cool to be able to watch what that animal does in such close proximity as it's trying to figure out where that sound is coming from and you're doing it from the position of having no stress about actually making the shot. So with that being said, in many cases, if I was actively hunting and I was going to kill that animal, 
There are many instances where I would actually take the shot well before the conclusion of the strategies in action video that you're watching. A lot of times the, the bulls in those videos end up getting so close, they see me or smell me and spook and just blow out, all right? But there were seven steps in front of me. Yeah, at, at that point, it's going to be difficult to get a shot. But when they were 30 and closing the distance and then walked behind that clump of trees, I would have been drawn back. I would have been holding. And as that bull moves his way through... If he is in a broadside orientation and he's walking through an opening, I would have stopped him. I always like using a chuckle just with my voice. (laughs) Okay, they'll stop him on a dime. It will stop them every time. I would probably chuckle with my voice, stop him, and I'd smoke him there. Even though he might end up over the next couple of seconds or several minutes, he might end up walking into five steps. It doesn't matter. He's broadside at 20 in a wide open hole. Stop that thing and put him on the ground. Okay? Some of those videos will show bulls that are coming in aggressively, not aggressively, urgently. They're coming in quickly. Well, if they're coming in quickly, they might be 80 yards out and I'm drawing my bow. Because I'm going to draw my bow while he's hidden or he's off at distance. He's not going to see that movement. He's going to keep trot, 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 trot. I'm just going to hold for 10, 15 seconds. And he's going to be in my lap. Again, he gets to the doorway. If I did my job right, I'm set up in the doorway. That bull comes trot, 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 trot. Stop, stops right in the doorway. A lot of times it's going to be a frontal or at least a very sharp angled, you know, angling too. I am going to bury that arrow deep in his chest and just watch him fall. All right, but I'm going to draw my bow well before that animal is in front of me. But with that said, there are a couple of examples in there where maybe that elk was moving across open country all the way in. And he's taking his time all the way in. But he does work himself to within 20, 30, 40 yards. What then? Well, some of those, I'm going to stand like a statue. I'm going to have the bow up in front of my face to cover my face and profile. And if that bull moves left or right and finally gets behind a tree or moves pat, you know, behind a, a tree or a clump of, of, it doesn't matter, brush, other trees, some sort of obstacle where he can't see me, well, then I'm going to get that bow back and then I'm going to hold and I'm going to just hope that, okay, have him settle down, have him within yardage and be able to make that shot. But the big thing is, or, and before I move on, the second part of that is also in some cases where these animals are coming through and they are getting close, they're, they're coming through open terrain, open habitat, and they're getting close. Sometimes The best thing that you can do is just wait until they do get close and then just smoothly draw your bow back. Are they going to see that movement? Yeah. Sometimes they see that movement and they just lock up and freeze and look and like, what the hell just happened? 
sometimes that's all the all the momentary pause you need to just bury that arrow right to the fletching or blow through him. Other times they will see that movement, they will smoot, spook, they will move off 10, 15 steps, just trot, 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 trot. And many times, you will see this many times, they'll trot, 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 and they will turn and either be broadside or they'll be quartering away because they want to look back and try to figure out what the heck they're just running from. If you're pulling back and that animal spooks and he trot, trot, trots off, stop him. You can use a cow call if you want, chuckle at him, whatever. Stop him, get him to, to quarter or turn broadside, look in your direction. This is where it helps to be good at yardage estimation without needing a rangefinder. But if you know the yardage, as soon as he comes to rest, send it. All right? But the one thing that I think oftentimes gets overlooked in this discussion of when to pull back, when to pull back is important. But I think also how you pull back on your bow is equally as important, maybe sometimes even more important. You want to be able to pull your bow back in one clean, smooth, controlled motion with your arm. So your hands. So imagine again, this is going to be in a longer, in a more detailed video. I'm going to have my hand and the bow up in front of my face to where my hand, my left, so I hold the bow with my, I'm right-handed. Bow's in my left hand, releases in my right hand, releases on the string. Both of those hands are right in front of my face. Because when I go to draw back, my left hand is going straight towards his eyeball. My right hand is going straight away from his eyeball. Elk, deer, animals with eyes on the side of their head don't have good depth perception. They can see lateral movement left or right very, very well, but they don't necessarily have good depth perception, meaning stuff moving towards them or away from them. Not initially, especially not smoothly in just a tiny little bit. If you think about the distance between your, you know, your brace height of your bow at rest say it's a seven inch draw or set, excuse me, seven inch brace height. And you have a 27 inch draw. That's 20 inches. So for 20 inches, for 10 inches, your left hand is going forward for 10 inches. Your right hand is going back. You're at full draw. If you're going straight to the animal's eye, they're not going to perceive the movement towards them all they're going to really perceive are those little subtle movements left and right. As long as your bow poundage is turned down to where, or at least your muscle tone is such that you can pull that bow back smoothly, cleanly, straight. A lot of times those animals will stand there and stare at you and eat the arrow. And if they do spook, they don't spook very badly. A lot of times when when elk spook from a bow being drawn, it's when somebody has their poundage turned up too high and they either have to start off high and wrench that thing down and then bring the bow down. There is exceptionally high levels of lateral movement. Up, down, left, right, round and round. That, that bow is moving all over the place as the person draws back. That is a bad deal. 
It's a bad deal if you're in a good setup. It's a bad deal if you're in a bad setup. It's a bad deal if the elk get close in cover, and it's a bad deal if they're in wide open. You want a smooth draw, straight forward, straight back to where the animal's like, did I just, what, did I see something? I Look, what, what? And all you need is that hesitation. All you need is that confusion. All you need is that animal to try to verify what the heck it just saw because that little pause gives you plenty of time. Anchor, sight picture, squeeze, arrow goes off or release goes off, arrow sends, done, done and done, okay? So you want to have a good smooth draw cycle. In some of the videos that I post there, I would have drawn my bow well before the elk was in my lap. But even then, and and then sometimes I, you know, the elk is moving in the open. I would just draw and let him see me and stop and look. And I would have him eat the arrow or I'd let him spook a little bit and, and then take my shot. But the other thing that you can do is if all of a sudden you're caught unawares and you look up and you're like, holy crap, damn it. That bull, he's, oh crap, he's there. He's right on top of me and he's moving through. Don't hesitate to let him move through. Let him go. And as he's moving past you, remember, they've got it, what is it, 270 degrees or whatever it is of, of or more of, of 280. I don't remember what it is. Jeez, oh, Pete, that's sad. A lot of their vision is left and right and in front of them. There's a wedge behind them that their eyesight really can't see well. And it's just like our peripheral vision. The more you get out to the edges of our peripheral vision, the less we actually detect. So if that animal is in a, he catches you unaware and he's on top of you and you drawing and risking him spooking is not the best. Just let him walk through, let him get by you. And if he gets by you, gets through cover. Okay. Then draw your bow and maybe stop him. Or draw your bow and give him a little call and see if you can't get him to turn around and come back or at least turn broadside or at least walk through a different little opening trying to figure out where you were. Don't hesitate to let them walk by you a little bit. Sometimes that is what needs to happen to get that shot. But no, a lot of the strategies in action videos, I'm not going to draw my bow once the animal is standing seven steps in front of me staring at my calling location. That's not what I'm going to draw. I will have drawn my bow well in advance. And quite honestly, I probably would have killed him. I probably would have killed him before that. All right? So. All right, let's kill that. That's been long enough. Uh, Those, like I said, those last two questions are going to be separate videos that that I will share actual video of elk and talk through some scenarios where you can actually see what I'm talking about. Uh, The other questions are questions that have come up repeatedly, so I wanted to tackle them here in a podcast. If you have other questions, if you have things that you want me to talk about, if you have ideas or blah, 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 whatever, get a hold of me. Let me know. Instagram is probably the best. You know, Instagram uh, direct messages are probably the best. Facebook works as well. Or just go uh, on the website. You can either do it there, contact at rowhuntingresources.com, or you can just send it straight to me, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at row, that's spelled R-O-E, 
rowhuntingresources.com. Let me know what your question is, and I'll either answer it in a podcast, I'll answer it in a video on the website, I will answer it in your in the forums. However it needs to be answered, I'll get it answered, I'll try to get it answered, and we'll go from there because probably someone else has that question too. All right? Excellent. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for following along. We'll get some more content out to you here shortly. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks again for following along, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.